This episode is powered by denmeditation.com, with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. Though meditation is the primary focus, the bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Hello, and welcome to Den Talks. We're here today with Hawk Newsom, the founder of Black Lives Matter of Greater New York. He's dedicated his entire adult life to the betterment of his community and our nation as a whole by bringing justice to an unjust system. He's from the Bronx. He's a native who was raised in a devout Christian household. He was kind of born into this. His parents were also activists. They actually met at a civil rights rally in the 60s. And he was born on April 4th, which carries a lot of significance, says it's also the birthday of Maya Angelou and the day that MLK Jr. died. So you could say he was meant to do this. However, as a kid, he had his own struggles, like all of us. He actually dropped out of high school. He got involved in drugs, was arrested. But he did figure out his own journey with the love of his family, his athletic ability. He was obsessed with basketball and really good at it. And it really helped him get through, get a GED, go to college. And ultimately, he went to Howard University and earned a law degree. So prior to founding Black Lives Matter in Greater New York, he did a ton of shit. This man is so impressive. He was a member of the Justice League New York City. He helps victims of police brutality. He works with members of the LGBT community. He helps victims of human trafficking and the mental health community as well. He also founded the Black Lives Caucus, and he lectures students at all times, and he's expanded his Black Lives Matter Greater New York to multiple New York City charter schools. Over the past few years, he's worked tirelessly seeking justice for the families of those slain by the police officers. Look, throughout his entire life, he's engaged in protests and activities to combat injustice. He's an activist, he's a Christian, he's a lawyer, and he's just someone who believes we should all stand up for what's right, no matter what that means. This is a really great conversation. Please give it time. I myself come from white privilege, and I felt like he answered a lot of things really honestly and explains things that I think a lot of us are afraid to ask. He's an incredible man. He approaches everything with love and humanity, and I think we can all learn something from him. So sit back and maybe take notes. He's really an incredible person. So I'm just really curious about how you got your name. Is Hawk your given name? No, I, I took it on after I was um, baptized. I gave my life back to God in um, 2016. And when I was baptized, I took on a new name. It's a funny thing with me and the, the, the actual bird. It's uh, my, my mid-20s, I was organizing a birthday party for my sister in a place that was called Lotus here in the New York City. That was, you know, a big nightclub. And I was walking my Rottweiler in the South Bronx in our local park, and this huge hawk came flying in. And oh it, my God. it was so big that I thought it would pick my dog up. My Rottweiler was a runt. And I just looked at it, and it landed on this monument, on a statue. And we just looked at each other for 15 minutes. And uh, after that, I just kept seeing minutes. these hawks. Yeah, just like right there, full on. That's intense. And it, it was. It was. And I, I really didn't understand the purpose until I kept seeing it. Like I'd be driving and one would fly literally 12 feet above my windshield for a half a mile or a quarter mile. My son was born with some um, heart issues and he had a pacemaker until he was 10. And I took his mother uh, to get something to eat while they were replacing the battery in the pacemaker. 
and I looked up and a hawk was circling the hospital. This is New York City. Right. And yeah. And they called us an hour and a half later, like, hey, guess what? Uh, we took the pacemaker out. We checked his heart. We don't think he needs it. So, um, yeah. Wow. And uh, so around that time, I got curious and I started looking at what the indigenous people believe. And they believed that hawks were warnings or a sign that you were on the right path. Before my father died, I saw two hawks off and on for like a month, like every other day, every two, three days. And when he died, I didn't see another one for months. So it just kept appearing. I was running for office. I was on an interview. One flew over my head, like making noises. When, when I'm trying to make tough decisions or when I'm worried, they appear. So I was I, actually, I was in AA. I had just started AA. And um, I was going through a really troublesome time in my life. I was going to anger management and I gave my life over to God. And I said, you know what? New man, new name, like Saul and Paul from the Bible. And then I looked up, I looked up um, with the ancient Egyptians. I looked up what they believed back in Kemet. And they believed that hawks were protectors from evils above. And I'm like, wow, that's what I do. I protect um, marginalized people with no voices, the little guy, so to speak, from bureaucracies and, and, and these giant, gigantic oppressive forces. So it seemed like the right thing to do. That's amazing that they've always been with you. Do you know what's funny about this? Not to make this about me at all, but I'm kind of laughing with my assistant who's here is I've had a lot of hawks in my life recently too. And really? that's part of the reason I wanted to ask you the question. Cause I'm like, why is that your name? And same thing, like I had a weird meditation the other day where I literally turned into a hawk. And I was like, it was the most bizarre feeling. I was like standing there and I started researching also. And oh it's God. just, so it's the same thing. That's why I was like, I have to start with this question because I'm dying to know if this was your given name or if you chose it. Because mm -hmm. to me, they've all of a sudden been surrounding me a lot as well. What did your research say? It's funny, very similar. Um, just the indigenous, same thing about... Um, you're on the right path, but also visionaries. And then in the past, if you believe in like older civilizations, that they were kind of renowned as, as the closest to anything else that was going on. So like they were the bridge of any other universes or higher life or spirituality because they had that bird's eye perspective, literally. So mm -hmm. in some ways, if you equate it to now, they say it's like a energy of vision. Like, so same idea, wow. you're on the right path and it's giving you this because I started asking people and researching too, because I'm like, this is so mm -hmm. strange. Why are hawks all of a sudden pervasive in like my dreams, my meditations? Like I see them too. It's, so it's bizarre. It's Amen. fascinating. And by yeah, the way, I was never a bird is. person at all. So I knew nothing about birds. Like I was like, I think that's a hawk. Like, and I had to look it up and be like, yeah, that's what it looked like. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's amazing. No, you, you, I, I get it. I, like, I get it. And when you start talking about, you know, being visionary, I say this is humbly as I know how, but in a lot of regards, especially in this work, I'm really ahead of the curve, just in my thought patterns and processes. And um, I, I'll give you some quick examples. Right? Yeah, please. But when New York was still Hillary Town and Barack Obama just had a book, we came up with this thing called Countdown to Change. I was actually out in LA. I flew out there to hang out with my boy. And my sister was like, take this book. It was The Audacity of Hope. And I'm reading this book and I'm like, this dude's going to be president. So I called one of my friends and uh, he threw parties all around New York City. And I said, let's do a fundraiser. 
and we had rappers come out. We had, uh, it was promoted on Hot 97, which is this huge radio yep. station here. It was so crazy. It was actually funny because the woman, it was, you know, you're familiar with New York? Yeah, I'm from New Jersey, right outside the city. Okay, cool. So it was an art gallery in Chelsea. And the fellow uh-huh. that I was working with said, <laughs> he said, we're having a political fundraiser. Uh, we'd like to use your space. So this one was like, yeah, sure. She expected people with suits or Quiet. you know, guys with khakis, <laughs> Oxfords. <laughs> we bought the whole hip hop community in New York out there. Amazing. It was like NBA players in the VIP downstairs. It was art galleries. So some of these like installations, women were like twerking on the installation pieces. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> she called she called the fire department on us. Like, and this was like, all for oh a it was yeah it was for obama he didn't come but it was like the party of the year and um so we saw that coming this last election with um with hillary and 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 president trump i we had a campaign called i ain't voting until black lives matter and what i what i what we said was black people are not motivated to vote black people are not enthusiastic about the democratic party you really need to do something and then Black people didn't show up to the polls. The black black women did, the older women, but other people didn't show up to the polls. So this was, um, it was, I mean, problematic in the sense that she lost, but like, <laughs> we just, I don't know. So when you talk about vision and yeah. just, you know, seeing things for what they are, I, I get it. You feel like I, you're always, I, I get so it. Hawk yeah. is appropriate for you. So I love that that's Amen. your namesake now. Amen. How, um, when you talk about actually voting, it's interesting. What do you feel like it would take to want black people to vote and feel like they belong and part of like, what do you feel like the changes for you that need to happen? Uh, well, you need to start talking about uh, financial literacy programs in our communities. You need to start talking about employment in a real way in our communities. Uh, the era of mass incarceration is real. Black people are being arrested at alarming rates and sentenced disproportionately to their white counterparts. That's my daughter. (laughs) Uh, Disproportionately to um, their white counterparts. Police brutality is very real and no political party. You know, you would expect the Republicans to feel one way about it, but the Democrats haven't really come to our aid. So right now we feel defenseless and we go out and vote for people. These politicians show up in our communities once every two or four years and, 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 and pacify us, and up, inspire us to vote. And we don't get anything in exchange. So I think that they'd have to start delivering and addressing us in a real way for us to get out and vote. And do you feel like the change is happening? I mean, do you feel like some of a little bit, you know, with social media, and I know you and I were talk, chatting a little bit before how it's hilarious, everybody wants it for the gram, but the benefit also is there's cameras everywhere now. So I feel like people, and I'll speak for myself too, are suddenly way more aware of stuff that I think some of us didn't realize was still going on. I think a lot of people assume the movement was further ahead than it actually is. And I think in a good way, it's it's really coming to light. Like you can't ignore it. I mean, it's right there. We're seeing it. We're seeing the things that are happening. Do you feel like, do you feel like the movement should have been further along too? Do you feel I like- I feel like um, this kind of ties into the last question. If the Democratic Party was serious about our vote and serious about addressing the needs of people, there'd be a national platform that addresses immigration, 
women's rights, the rights of LGBTQ people, black people. Like, there'd be a serious, uh, uh, all-inclusive type of platform that every Democrat is running on. I think the movement is so scattered that it's impeding progress. Everybody is changing their activism strategies or causes with the news cycle, you know? And that's problematic for me. That's extremely problematic. I could say change strategies, yeah, but don't just blow with the wind, like a leaf in the wind. I feel as though we really need to stand together and not be provoked. But I also say peace because peace can be breached. Because if you're standing next to me and some white supremacist comes after you, then I'm going to put him on his behind. Right. The same as if I see people picking on a homeless person, I'm going to inf- intervene physically if I have to. And um, I, I, so I think peace should be, should be prominent and love in our hearts should be the force that drives us. And what does that look like? That looks like not fighting the KKK, right? That looks like not uh, confronting them. But what it looks like is saying, hey, you uh, white person over here, do you agree with him? No? Okay, let's take a stand against the KKK together. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's take a stand and show them that love is, is the way to go. So it's not us walking up to them and saying, we hate you. We can't stand what you're doing. It's us building this coalition of love on this side. And a lot of people would say, you're wrong. You have to meet them head on. You have to fight with them. But I was in Charlottesville for the riot almost a year ago, right? And it's just not the way to go for us. Because once this, 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 this race riot or, or race war starts, no one will know who to attack. No one will know who's on their, our side. And unfortunately, the police would intervene. On, history has shown us that the police would intervene on the side of the white supremacists. That's probably how do you how do you I mean, it's such an I mean, I love what you're saying that it should come from love. How do you make that permeate? And by the way, whether it's Black Lives Matter or really so many issues, I always feel like that's the thing. How do you control what's the balance of anger, which fuels you to move things along and the balance of that between acceptance and love, which I think ultimately will probably solve the problem. But how do you control what that mixes and Mm -hmm. And what's that perfect balance and how do you inspire that in, or teach it in others? If you see someone who's, who's shot by the police, you're going to go out there and you're going to be angry and your words are going to be passionate, but you're not going out and destroying property, right? So we could be civil and say, you know, systematic oppression leads to uh, police having the right to kill, to hurt, to falsely imprison people, right? But when you see Stephen Clark get shot at 20 times and killed in his, 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 his grandmother's backyard and he's holding nothing more than an iPhone, and when you take to the streets, you're going to say, fuck the police. You get what I'm saying? And a lot of times, if I'm angry, like absolutely angry, I won't release a statement. I won't go out into the streets because I, I, I could put people in danger, you know, by getting them riled up in a really aggressive way. 
So I, I won't even take to the streets. I won't say anything. I'll give it a day or two and cool off because it's my responsibility not to let people get hurt, you know, to, to, to organize people in a strategic and effective way. But how do you, I mean, look, what you're saying is, you know, in your heart of hearts that the leading with anger is not going to get you anywhere. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. you don't feel it. It doesn't mean you're not human and don't have it. But yeah. how do you instill that in all these people that you're trying to rise? Because that is a really, I mean, look, that's what we do here every day. You know, we're a meditation studio. It is all learning, like how not to be overtaken by your emotions. It doesn't mean you don't have them, but how not to let them control you. So how do you do that in a way that you're leading people? That whole movement is based on passion and injustice. And of course, you're going to be fueled. How can you teach others to be able to take that breath like you take? Mm-hmm. So in order to keep the movement the in the realm, like you said, in a way where it is not like pacifism, but it is more pacifist. Absolutely. Uh, one, I meditate, you know, uh, two, I'm constantly in prayer. I'm no saint, not by far, but I'm constantly in prayer. Three, we give people objectives. We say, Hey, this is the mark that we're trying to hit. We are out here today for Andrew Kearse. What do we want? We want the officer who allowed him to die to be fired. What do we want? The uh, attorney general to prosecute this case. These are our wants. Here's how we go about getting them. So you you give people a direction and um, hopefully you, 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 you allow them to feel like we will win. That's what I believe in my heart. I believe we will win. That's why I dedicate my life to this. So, it's, it's all about the instruction and, and the direction that you're giving people. And I'm not knocking people for being angry, right? Uh, you, my counterparts in this movement, it's like, you know, 500, I mean, four centuries of oppression. Uh, Look, and you said to so yourself, you're angry too. Yeah. Like, it, it, <laughs> yeah, we're, people are angry, of course. Yeah. I just channel it in a different way. I'm not knocking anyone. I just think that always better. And I'm entitled to feel that way, you know, based on who we are as a team, as a family. We're a diverse coalition, but the people at the top of this organization are black. Why? Because it's our experience, right? So there's, 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 there's this thing called white privilege, you know, and I work with a lot of, um, you know, people from the wellness community. And I work with white folks from affluent backgrounds. And to them, they are in touch with the people. And it's that privilege that's inside of them that sometimes shows itself in their speech patterns. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. You're here to help, not to dictate. You understand? You're here to listen. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that of like, what would you see in speech patterns that indicate white privilege? Okay. Um, There was an instance where there's a person who I believe is a wonderful human being. We were working together on a project that I have called Rejuvenation. And he said, well, why does it have to be about black people? Why can't it be for all people? That's what the vision should be. Right. But he doesn't know my experience and what I see in the South Bronx in the Bronx where I grew up is Latinos are the majority of the population so most of the government funding goes to Latino organizations and not that I'm knocking my Latino brothers and sisters but there simply isn't enough 
there that's focused on healing and helping black people. So we're not excluding anyone, but this is a program that we have that's, that's led by black folks and you're coming in to help out and, and really help us uplift the community, but understand what it's about. And what you, that privilege that we talked about doesn't allow people to understand the importance of focusing on black people, right? And that's why you have these people who say all lives matter, right? I was just However, about to ask you that question. That's funny. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's strange to me because you've heard the analogies, right? You don't run into a breast cancer fundraiser and say, well, what about prostate cancer, right? You don't run into save the seals and scream, you know, freedom for whales. Like, it's just res- respected. Like, this is what you're doing. However, America, through centuries of oppressing and brainwashing all American citizens, uh, has found a way to, to trigger people when they hear black people are, are on a mission for human rights to, to, to pressure them or to question their motives when no one else is questioned. A person could have a kiss me, I'm Irish shirt on. You won't run up to them and say, oh, so you hate Italians? Tell me, you must hate Italians. That's funny. <laughs> right. It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting because I was going to literally bring it into like, how does that make you feel when you hear, no, all lives matter. So, I mean, you just, you just touched on it. So do you mm. think, because it's, because what you're talking about, and even when you say we need a bigger platform where we all work together, I mean, I'm assuming that ultimately the goal is you don't see color. Like ultimately in the future, it is let's say all lives matter, just for lack of better words. But mm-hmm. in order to get there, part of the evolution is you have to own this identity and fight for it in order to bring it to the point of equality. Mm-hmm. And um, a good friend of mine says that analogies are the worst form of persuasion. But I have to give you one, right? Please. Um, a lot of people want us to stop talking about racism. So it'll just go away. But racism eats away at people, it takes lives, it corrodes this, in, this entire nation. And I liken it to a disease like cancer. You ever hear people say, ignore cancer, it'll go away? <laughs> or they take uh, the most aggressive means necessary to f- combat that cancer. No one says just let cancer spread, it'll be fine. No, you say we're gonna address this and we're gonna handle it now. So now's the time for Americans and I'm not expecting the Democrats to do it. I'm not expecting the Republicans to do it. Definitely not the White House. Um, <laughs> it's time for Americans to really say, you know what? This is our problem and we're going to figure it out. That's why we say all lives will matter when black lives matter. Of course, black people know that all lives matter. However, when we are killed, our lives don't matter. Imagine what it's like seeing that for for decades and then centuries, it's like, wow, you really think that we're worthless and that that hurts. So um, what we're, actually, what we're doing on August 3rd through August 12th, I'm officially announcing this. I haven't announced this yet, <laughs> is we're having the here. Agape March. And, the, you know, Agape is the sacrificial yep. love. We're marching from New York City. We're walking to Washington, D.C., Wow. Right on. And we're looking to sleep at churches 
uh, synagogues, temple, whoever will allow us to sleep on this trek. And we're marching it out of love. And what we're saying is we are standing here together in love to saying that we will not tolerate racism anymore. And the reason why we're going to Washington, D.C. is the white supremacists that were in Charlottesville last year that are responsible for the death of Heather Heyer that spread all of that hate. I was there last year. I was pepper sprayed. I was hitting my face with rocks. It was a war zone. Those same people have secured a permit in Washington, D.C. on August 12th, the anniversary of the day that this young woman died. And this was a white woman who oh. died for Black lives and died for fighting against anti-Semitism. So what we're doing is we're going to march in love. And on the complete opposite side of town, we're going to have a rally that promotes love, right? And racial harmony. And I, I ask you to partner with us. I ask whoever, whoever wants to to partner with us, you know, so we could show them. They say that, oh, you should confront them. Our way of confronting them is building a movement of love that just cast this huge shadow over them that, that, that dwarfs what they're doing out there, out there. It's amazing because I feel like there's just so much anger everywhere. Like even, and you know, and how do you work with that? Like even, you know, with all this police brutality, which I feel like has been so obvious. Like I said, we can now see it with our own eyes, but yet the anger that then comes from, with a lack of better words, the other side too, of feeling like there's a huge generalization. And I mean, I would assume we all know you, I'm assuming you don't think every single police officer is a racist, but there are racist. There are systems. So how do you, or maybe you do, I mean, please answer it however you feel appropriate, but how do you counteract the generalizations with the facts and love and trying to get more people to understand your point of view versus all the anger that's being spewed everywhere? Does that make sense? I feel like I babbled a lot of things. I really want people to understand, right, that the system is racist. There are some cops, the criminal justice system is biased. Study right. after study is shown. We can all agree on that. Mm -hmm. There are officers who view themselves as heroes and really don't see the magnitude of what they're involved in. And then there are civilians who say, wait, these people put their lives on the line for us. However, you have studies or investigations by the FBI, which found that the KKK and white supremacist groups have infiltrated the police departments, law enforcement mm. across the country, right? Yeah, these are facts. You have police uh, quota systems where in which police need to make a certain number of arrests or write a certain amount of tickets and study after study has shown that they go into black and brown communities to meet these quotas. There's just these, an overwhelming amount of evidence that racism is present in policing. So what we say is not what I say, what my group says, is some people just want to abolish policing completely. I would like to work to where we get to a point as a society where we don't need police patrolling our neighborhoods right. all the time. But right now, we need to reform the way that we police in America. And here's the thing. When people are bad at their jobs, they're fired. Period. 
uh, plumbers, and, uh, lawyers, um, yep. everybody, right? They're fired. However, when a police officer does wrong, everyone in society stands with them. And worst of all, police stand with them. So you have a case like Walter Scott, and this was a black man who was running away from, the, from a police officer and was shot in his back a number of times. Then the same video showed a police officer. The same video showed a police officer walking over and planting a taser next to him. Police still supported him. So I ask, how are we supposed to respect you if you're backing someone that is doing wrong? And I understand that there's a blue wall of silence and we are proposing legislation that breaks that blue wall of silence. What we say is, if a police officer is found falsifying documents to cover his actions and or another police officer's, then he should be prosecuted and sent to jail and he should lose, he or she should lose their pension. That's a common sense fix. That's, so now it's like, hey, you know what? You beat up that person. I can't help you because I have to take care of my kids. I have a mortgage. I have my career, my future to worry about. I can't do this for you. You're on your own. I have a case against the NYPD right now in which I'm suing them. And an officer punched me in my face twice, right? And I read over this report several times. There's no mention of him punching me in the face. There's these allegations against me, but he conveniently omitted the fact that he punched me in my face. You know? And yep. that's what people need to be uh, responsible for. I sat in a courtroom for this case, this man named Jamal Lightfoot, who was not a saint, right? And um, he mouthed off to a commanding officer at Rikers Island. That's a jail here in the city. And the Rikers Island, the, the, the officer that he mouthed off to sent the riot squad in there. They broke every bone in his face. The officers that stood outside and that lied on their reports were found guilty the, of falsifying these reports. The other officers were found guilty of gang assault. Cops found guilty of gang assault. But these officers were found guilty of falsifying the report. And this judge in the Bronx sat there and looked at them and said, you've been through enough. Go home. How? How is that possible? Why, why would you allow? them to get away with this. It's, it's unbelievable to me. Have, have you ever, because I mean, you're just such an amazing speaker. Have you ever sat one-on-one -on -one with anyone in that position, like any of these police, like you, and actually been like, how or what, and ever been able to have a dialogue with someone like that? Uh, and, I, and I don't mean just the police in a broader sense. I mean like an actual police officer who's been part of it or someone who's been on that side. It was a cop who's been accused of some pretty egregious acts and um and i said and 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 i spoke to him and he was actually one of the cops that the police department did punish and his angle was like look at everything that's happening they're choosing me because i'm black right they're choosing to do this to me because i'm black but when he talked to me and i listened to to his mentality it's like, nah, man, you, you don't get it. It's a lack of understanding. And, and what, I've, what I've experienced here in New York City is when cops speak out against other cops, 
they put them in this unit called community affairs. So, because obviously they're speaking the language of the community, but when they go out into the community, their whole spiel is cops are not that bad. This isn't what it is. And I sit, sit there and I hear them lie to people and, and tell it. So it's just a whole system needs to be changed. Like I, it needs to be changed. Like I have law enforcement folks in my family, you know, right. um, some of whom have. I was say, how are those me. Thanksgivings? <laughs> nah, they, what'd you say? <laughs> I said, how are those Thanksgivings? <laughs> ah, well, <laughs> I kicked joking. one of them out of my house <laughs> because he sat there and he told me that when a bad guy runs, he gets beat up. That's the way it is. That's the way it. It's always been, and Black everyone and knows it. It's a code. No. It's not a code. Actually, it goes against the codes that are written into statutes that are the laws that govern our land. <laughs> it, it's it's so interesting how there's just I, I, I wanted to actually talk to you about this. So it may, it's a good segue, but like how with systems that are put in place, whatever they may be, whether now we're talking about police, but as you get more systems in the world and in life, sometimes there's just a lack of humanity kind of disappears. It's weird. It's almost like they forget the human faces that are behind. I mean, exactly what you're saying that the person in your family said, it's like just this black and white issue. There's no situation around it. There's no person around it. There's nothing human or loving about that statement at all. And it's just, it just feels like humanity kind of disappears a little bit. And does that make sense at all? And it's like, how do you... And I feel like that's what you're saying. It's like, how do you, when you speak to people and you, how do you get them to understand things are nuanced? There's more to it. There's people at stake. There's lives at stake. There's futures lives. at stake. That just brings me to two conclusions. You have Barack Obama, who before he left office, had this amount, this enormous amount of power, where in which he could have said, everybody who's been in this country over 10 years, even 20 years, go to your local immigration office. We're going to make you citizens. He didn't do that. He didn't give them any asylum. We're talking, you know, there's, there's so much that could have been done. Now you look at the Republicans, these Christian, these conservatives who are saying, I don't care how long you were in this country. Even if you're a child who's been, if you're a young college age person who's been here for 20, 18 plus years and wasn't born on this soil, go home. If you're a person who's seeking refuge from uh, some sort of torture or even death in your homeland, in your motherland, you got to get out of this country. You got to figure out where's the compassion? Like Christ was all about compassion and loving your brother and sister, you know? And um, that's, that's not what I'm seeing present in society. Like, there's no love. There's complete indifference. And, and there's a large number of light workers like you, like me, a lot of people who are out here who are um, trying to really help society. But it's cool right now not to care. Look at your timeline. It's people fighting each other. You know, hopefully not yours, but I see it a lot in mine. People fighting each other, people hurting each other. You, 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 you go on Twitter and people are saying the most heinous things in the world. 
Do you think, I mean, look, obviously hate has been around forever. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, I mean, that's what you're fighting against. But do you feel like social media and just that ability of being able to throw your voice wherever without thinking about it and everybody getting a platform, do you think that's made it worse? Or do you think this was all there, it's just nobody had the platform? Yeah, I think it was always there. Just people didn't have the platform. I I also believe it's a lot easier for people to be ugly. Yeah, without thinking. I mean, it's because it's like almost anonymous in some ways. I feel like people don't stop and even think for a second the ramifications of what they're saying, what it actually means. Like we said, again, the humanity, the love around anything is completely missing. Let's talk about your Christianity. So you're, it's interesting because you, you've referred to it a few times. You feel like that Christianity, that spirituality is just missing. And, you know, what I like the, when you do talk about politics, you've never been like, I'm a left, I'm a right, um, which I think is... Some people. But I think that's great. And I think that's actually, it's smart. But yeah. you do, you know with being so Christian, which sometimes aligns a lot with the right side, has that been a struggle for you? I mean, I know that when you did Mother of All Rallies, you got some people really slammed you for that, which I didn't quite understand because I didn't understand. But how was that for you? Like where people felt like you were. You can be, you can be gay. You can be a feminist. You can be whatever you want to be in the world. But when you say you're a Christian, people cringe like that's so troublesome to me it's it's so troublesome to me you actually have to defend your christianity and um you know you see things online like that is your slave master's religion and that's coming from a muslim people from muslim people and they were forced to be muslims by arab slave owners there's <laughs> so much like hypocrisy in it and um, I just, I, I like people with religion because it, 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 it tells me that you have some sort of moral code that either you're listening to or you should be listening to. I, I, I like people with religion. I also like people who have this, this loving heart, who, who, who identify with just love. That's cool. We can, um, we can vibe with that. And um, so I just, I, I don't know. I, I just, I believe at, at the core of every religion is love. And, and this, is what, this is what we need. Like you, you said a little while ago, everybody's running around angry. What if people just decided to love, be healing? So you take our prison systems and you make them about restorative justice. Okay, so now you have the, you have, you have these people who are doing trouble, troubling things in the media. So what are we saying? We hate you forever? Or are we saying, go pay your debt to society and actually get healed? Or, you know, you flipped out, like say the people who make racist remarks, who are now banned from all forms of employment, they're fired. Okay, so what's the solution? Are we gonna send them to a cultural sensitivity class? At what point, are we going to lay down terms to where this person can get on the path toward redemption, toward forgiveness? And I feel like this is who I am in my core. I'm a very forgiving person. And that's what I would like to see people get back to. So now what you saw at the mother of all rallies, people are used to me being a hardcore revolutionary, right? 
And me, I'm willing to stand up and die for the love of my people. However, I believe that making a choice to move in peace and in love is one of the toughest things that I could do. It's easy for me to be angry all the time, but it's extremely hard to look at this situation and say, it's about love. It's about bringing people together to do the right thing. That's, that's, that's harder than just being angriest. My pastor, Carl Lentz at Hillsong, and I'm sorry, I saw you about to say something. My pastor, Carl Lentz, Carl Lentz at Hillsong NYC, he gave a sermon a few months ago and it said, are you an activist or are you an angriest? Oh, I love that. There's a lot of people out there who are angry and um, that's not who we are. How do you feel like on that note, like within your Christianity, for me, it's spirituality and meditation. How do you feel like deepening your sense of self and love, which then can allow you to love others, will help with this activism and help with your revolution? And Jesus was the first radical revolutionary. <laughs> you know, think about what, what Jesus was doing. He was like, these governments, these empire. This, these tax collectors, the way that you were treating people, all wrong. Okay. I also loved and accepted everybody. I mean, I've never understood how people under Christianity can reject so much and so many people because it's like he, he loved, I mean, more than anybody. That's it. That's it, right? Help thy neighbor. And um, <laughs> he, uh, there's, there's a lot of parables, and I'm not one of those folks who can quote the Bible verbatim. But, you know, it's like the stranger on the road, people walking by him. And then that one person who stops and actually gives something of themselves. That's that's what we need. Like, that's what we need. There's so much food waste in the world that we could feed all hungry people three times over. You think people are helping? I have a case, uh, a, a victim. His name is Ralph Nimmons. He, he had a problem life, um, drugs homelessness and he was accused of stealing a piece of cake from a supermarket called stop and shop and the employees tackled him and one held you know they they roughed him up a little one person sat on him the other person had their foot on him and he's screaming out i can't breathe i have a heart condition the whole time patrons are saying what did he steal i'll pay for it just leave him alone they ignored them and stayed kept applying pressure to him and he died. $5 piece of cake. We're not even sure if you tried to steal it. And um, it's, it breaks your heart. So we go out there, you know, we're making noise. We got the bullhorns, we got the signs, boycott, stop the job. And the corporation sends their lawyers out there and their lawyers stand around and take notes and take pictures and not one time did they walk over to his brother and sister who was standing out there with us and say, we're not taking any liability for this, but we just want to say we're sorry. We're just trying to get to the bottom of this, just like you are. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying. There's a, a lack of human. People get so caught up in the systems, whatever one they're mm -hmm. associated with, the lack of the humanity goes out the window. Absolutely. That's like and this really is sad. my life every day. Really sad. And that's why I pray. And you said you meditate too? I mean, I was going to say, I don't know how you get through it because you're taking on so much sorrow and pain and hurt and 
you've now become a leader. So I'm sure you feel very responsible and yeah, I mean, to keep yourself strong and be able to keep doing that every day. That's like your, t- it's, it's God Absolutely. for you. And, and, and um, I like, I do broga in the morning. Like. It's like, broga is like, you know, my manly version of yoga. Not saying that yoga is feminine, but it's like, I kind of cheat and just do a, a few stretches. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I do a little bit of work with the dumbbells and um, I listen to like T.D. <laughs> Jakes preach a sermon. So it's just like my, you know, my, my broga, it's, it's my thing. And cause I don't really have time to go to yoga classes. Like I really don't have a lot of time to do things for me. Usually it's, it's me running and my wife, my, my daughter, my son, that's, that's my me time. My mother, my sister, that's, that's my me time. So I really don't get much me time. I'm always, I feel like I live life between meetings or between events. And it's hard when what your meetings and events are, are really supporting and taking care of so many other people. It's hard for you to say, you know what, I'm going to carve out more time for me because you just feel yeah. so guilty about it. Because you feel like if I don't do that, then these things Absolutely. are jeopardy. How, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood, just because uh, part of what I like with this podcast is, and hey, you're just terribly, very inspiring, but how you got how you got here, because- you know, you had your parents were activists themselves. They met at a, a civil rights mm-hmm. rally, correct? Um, so what was it like, A, being raised with that? And also, I mean, from what I know about you, you, you dropped out of high school at one point. Like you were involved with drugs or whatever. Like how did you – I want to talk a little bit about that and how you got on track because – you ended up going to law school. I mean, you've worked, you were as a paralegal, went to law school, then in the DA. I mean, you've done so much stuff and you were a very impressive man um, by anybody's standards. So I, I, I think there's something there about how you can talk about how you did find your way and this and what your path is. Okay. I, um, yeah, my parents met at a civil rights rally. I was born on April 4th. April 4th is significant to me in this position because it's the day that Martin Luther King Jr. died, right, on a different year. Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, who was also a congressman and civil rights activist, he died on that day, different year. Maya Angelou, perhaps the best black amazing. Uh, poemist ever, <laughs> you know what I mean? She was born on that day. And um, so, you know, growing up in my house was different. There were books everywhere, uh, mostly about being black, black in America, black this, black that. Like, <laughs> just everywhere. And my mother loved those those romance novels, <laughs> those blonde guys with like the long hair and muscles. <laughs> um, but um, my mother was pretty, pretty radical. But in her own little demure way, she wasn't like screaming about it, talking about it all the time. But there was an incident at her job where. She, a customer was being blatantly racist to her, and the supervisor came in and and kind of sided with the woman. It was like, oh, you know, she's just and and kind of like my, made my mother out to be like this bad black person. And my mother walked off the job at that time. My father was sick; he was very sick. We didn't have any income, but that was it. Like, I'd rather starve. And stay here and take this racism. That's the cloth that I'm. That's the cloth that I'm cut from. My dad. We were watching Top Gun, and this is a man who told me to shoot for the stars, right? And everything I did, we were watching Top Gun, and I was like, Dad, 
I'm going to the Air Force and um I'm I'm gonna fly planes like Tom Cruise and <laughs> be like, you know, Maverick. And um he was like, if you go into that Air Force, you'll mop the decks that the planes take off from. You know? But he understood so how the military treated black people and he understood that that wasn't the place for me. He didn't, I mean, you know, he signed up to go to Vietnam, but he had a heart condition. He couldn't go. But um, that's just, that's just the way I was raised. Like my father hated Elvis because Elvis stole black music. He stole black dance moves, but hated black people. Same thing with John Wayne. He was an outright racist. Now you gotta understand, I'm seven years old, <laughs> naive, and he's just pouring this into yeah. me. Like, okay. And, and we watched the news every night. Sundays, it was a show called Like It Is. And um, there was another show called Eyes on the Prize. Every week, it was about the um, civil rights struggle. But this was my house growing up. So I was kind of like groomed for this. I grew up like a Cosby kid. Like I had everything I wanted, you know, until my father couldn't work, both parents working. There wasn't any of those, you know, those elements that they liked, that, that picture that they painted of the South Bronx that wasn't my house. Like, you know, we were poor. Sometimes the lights would get cut off. Sometimes we wouldn't have food, but we pretty much ate well and had whatever we wanted to an extent. My parents believed that if they bought me the clothes that the kids would go out and sell drugs to buy, that I wouldn't be tempted to go out into the streets. But what I fell victim to was I had this followers mentality. Like I just wanted to be a part of everything. My father, if he said one thing to me more than anything else, it was be a leader, stop following people. And um, so, you know, I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be down. So I wanted to hang out. I stopped going to school. I started drinking a lot. Like first time I ever drank a beer, I was 10 years old. I really started drinking heavily, 16, 17. And pretty much drank <laughs> at least once or twice a week for the next 24 years. And, um, yeah, so um, sometimes every day a week. And it was a lot of weed smoke. So even back then, I dropped out and we started selling weed, right? So so here I was. We had, like, this storefront. And um, outside with, like, these. We were always a visionary <laughs> ahead <Yeah>. of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so, right? Let's <laughs> bring it full circle. <laughs> that was a nice connection. I like that. And um, so, so my friends would be on the bus going to school, and I'm outside, you know, a couple hundred dollars sneakers, boots on, just big gold chain, and I'm sweeping in front of my store, waving at my friends like, "Hey!" <laughs> but here's the thing: on weekends, I would travel with a basketball team that had McDonald's All-Americans on it. I traveled with guys like, like Ron Artest, Metta World Peace. He won the championship with Kobe, uh, Elton Brand. So basketball was my saving grace. Wow. And to be perfectly honest, the reason why I went back to school to get my GED, I call it a good enough diploma, was because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go to school so I could play basketball against better people. No, but that's great. I mean, look, everyone needs something. So for you, it was purely yeah. sports. You love sports. You wanted to keep going and playing, so you needed it. And then once you went there, but I mean, from that point on, how did it, re like, that was the beginning of getting on track. But then, like I said, you did really impressive things. Like you graduated and then you were a paralegal before you even went to law school, right? Or vice versa. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, and you were a paralegal for the DA's office. I mean, these aren't small little jobs. I mean, these are really impressive positions. So was it in college, like when you went to go play basketball, that something switched in your head? When when do you feel like it all started settling for you? Yeah, no. Um, I, in college, I screwed up every way possible. <laughs> like, I was on the verge of getting kicked out every other week freshman year. Like, I was begging and pleading to stay in college. Um, I, uh, there were these things and, and we, I went to junior college in Midland, Texas, and that's where they send basketball players who have really good talent, but don't have grades. And, um, they had the, when you were punished, we had to run like an hour and a half, run around this, this, this whole arena that we had do bear crawls. And it was meant to just break you. I ran so many of those circuits. My that year that after I left, they named them Newsoms. So <laughs> kids that came after me <laughs> had to run Newsoms, and um, it it just kept going, you know, because 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 even in college, like I had a trade, you know what I'm saying? Like I sold weed. Right. That's how I was able to make money. So I, you know, I was arrested when I was in college for selling weed, not at the school, but like you know, and I come home, I need money, and um. And and I was arrested for that. Damn, I never really talk about that. You got it. So <laughs> no, but I mean, I think so. Um, I mean, it's it's my life. It's an open book, and now it's completely legal. And we're trying to figure out how to get people who are in jail aren't for it. enterprising young business people into that industry with licenses. So um, it still took a while because at that time I didn't know it, but I was a I was a real deal alcoholic like I was a serious alcoholic and put my life in danger and I had serious anger issues and I was hurting people like you know men women like I was a very angry and belligerent drunk and this is you know it's hard dealing with the person you was because you look back and you're like wow that was me but um I think it helps because now I go and I talk about DV and I get young black and Latino men coming up to me like, you know, I, I have those behaviors, but I never knew it was a problem. And I'm like, no, bro, it is a problem. And here's how you get help. You know, so they wouldn't have really went to seek out that type of help. I work with um, domestic violence survivors. So my life has been in continuous work in progress, you know. And um, so it, I'm still learning. Like last year, I just learned, you know, that peace is the way to go. This is why I really wanted to talk about this part of your life with you, because I do think, A, it's perfectly led you to where you are, because I think you're not only a leader who's promoting peace and love, you're someone who's experienced all of it. So you're never talking down to anybody. Like when you say you go and you meet someone and they're like, shit, I have these behaviors too. I didn't know it was a problem. Like the reason you can affect them or reach them is because you were that too. So you're not pretending to understand. You do understand. And look, people are complex. And that's what I think is so amazing about your journey is you encapsulate what humanity is. It's like we're complex people, but it does not mean you can't promote peace and love ultimately. And I think the fact that you've come out on that end says a lot since you've been part of the journey. So it's like you've been there and you're like, that doesn't work. Like, this is what's going to work. So when you look at yourself exactly. now, like, how do you describe yourself as like a complicated human? Like, what would be the ways you would describe yourself? Uh, I'd say that I have an ext- 
extreme sense of empathy that is rare. It's rare because I literally feel people's pain. Like it's not like I sympathize for them or I think, wow, must be terrible to be in your shoes. I really feel like I'm in their shoes. Um, I place a high value on my faith, uh, cherish my relationship with God. Uh, not perfect, very imperfect, as I've explained, but I'm constantly taking steps to walk on a, a path that's true. Uh, I'm bullheaded. <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you that. I'm bullheaded. I believe that I have a vision. And if you don't believe in my vision and you can't convince me to see your side of it, then I'm perfectly fine with us not working together, you know? Yeah. So um so so what we do is we'll we'll have these conversations with the group and it's like people are trying cases, like, okay, whose logic will prevail? And when other people's logic are more sound, I'm like, cool. I tip my hat and this is the direction that we're moving in. So right now, um, I just, I feel like if not me, then who, if not us, then who, if not now, then when, and it's my obligation to really be a voice to the voiceless, to say things that people won't say, to say things that people who have my level of visibility are afraid to say because they're tied to funders. They're tied to people politically. Nobody really put me here other than, you know, my family and God and some friends, but nobody really cut a big check. I didn't have a celebrity mentor or a mentor that put me in this place. I had great mentors, Bob Spiro, like a 90 year old Jewish man, Jewish, Jewish dude. And we used to sit back and drink like three bottles of wine at lunch. And here I am, six five, big black <laughs> with a hoodie or a hat on. And he's in a suit, 80 years old, you know, white hair, little Jewish guy. And we're sitting back drinking, laughing louder than anybody in the restaurant. And that was my mentor. But he, he taught me business. You know, I had great men in my life, right? My father, my sister says, that I adopt fathers, like I adopt these father figures. I have a great dad, you know, but um, I, I, I just have like a lot of really old friends. Not That's really, like, I hate to call people really old. And, and, but they're and I really think old. The, just... the cutoff for, for old is like 72. That's the safe age to call somebody old. They know they're old at 72. <laughs> I give 72 old. I have a lot of friends who are over 72 who I call when I need to make decisions in this movement and they give me good advice. So I'm a student. I'm a student. You're a student. I'm still learning. Ah, oh, if there's one word that I used to 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 label you. myself, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of humanity. That's beautiful. I mean, I feel like we all should be, and humanity mm -hmm. would really grow. What on this note to close, because you were just saying you call these people for advice. What advice would you give? And it might be twofold. What advice would you give? to those who come from white privilege to understand this movement better? And what advice would you give to anyone to just help push the movement along? Okay. Um, 
right now, white people have to stand up against racism. They can no longer sit at home and say that it's terrible. They can no longer say, I have black friends, it's all right. No, they really have to voice their opinions at the ballot booth on social media. They have to get out in the streets with us. This agape march, we're marching against white supremacists who kill people. This would be a good time for them to show up in Washington, D.C. on August 12th and say, hey, you know what? They're racist, they're evil, they're anti-Semitic. I'm not one of them. I stand with you on this day. Uh, I, I, and, and moving forward, I say ask questions, you know? Ask questions. Ask really wholehearted, sincere questions, but be sensitive to who you're speaking to. Don't be presumptuous, be sensitive. And I think that'll go a, a really long way. But right now it's time for America to say that we won't allow the KKK to function any longer in this country. And that's long overdue. They've claimed more lives on American soil than any terrorist. And they endorse people politically. They have members who are politicians. Like, when we don't like something, we do away with it as Americans. And it's time to do away with the KKK. Thank you so much for your time. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, before we wrap up, I want to remind everybody that, you know, he's, Hawk is going to lead us in his personal practice, but just talking to you is very enlightening. I, I come from white privilege, so this has been a great conversation for me, and I appreciate it. And I apologize if I ask any questions. That no, you were, were great. But I had a good time. But I didn't realize how long we were talking. This I know, me cool. neither, by the way. It's why I looked and I was like, <laughs> oh, I should. But I do, I am very grateful for the conversation because I feel like from someone with white privilege who does care a lot, sometimes you just don't know what to say and then you freeze versus mm -hmm. just trying to be proactive and helpful. And I feel like you've given us or anybody so much to a, think about and be like ways to like start taking action in ways that are actually helpful. So thank you. And you were just so inspiring. And I hope anyone who listens to this can grab, grab on anything because I feel like you're inspiring in so many ways from who you are and also what you're doing every day. Thank you. So thank you so much for being here with us. And again, he's going to lead us in a personal practice. Um, and he's going to read a passage that inspires him. Okay. So this is my family's prayer. Um, this is one of the first prayers that I learned. It gives me assurance. Um, some would call it a blessed, blessed assurance. And I would encourage everyone to just listen to the words of the prayer and kind of like pull the pieces of it apart and understand how it applies to my life and how it possibly applies, you know, not, don't understand how it applies to my life, but understand how it would apply to yours. Um, it's the 23rd Psalms. The way that I memorized it is from the um, King James Version of the Holy Bible. And it, it goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, but thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me 
in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. So if you want to get involved in the Agape March, it's already started. They're in the middle of it. But on August 12th, they culminate in D.C. around the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Monument. They'll be hearing speeches from peace leaders around the world. Their goal is just love and peace. This is such a beautiful cause. Look it up, agapemarch.org. If you're on the East Coast or plan on taking a trip, try and go support them in D.C. Dentox is produced by Michael Burke, Mike Burns, Reem Edon, Nicole Rappi, and music by Alex Fetter.